Welcome to The Dynamist, a podcast by Lincoln Network. I'm Evan Schwarztraber. There is turmoil at the Federal Trade Commission. This is the agency charged with protecting consumers. It's also one of two agencies that deal with antitrust, promoting competition, preventing monopolies, that sort of thing. Last week, Republican FTC Commissioner Christine Wilson announced her resignation in a Wall Street Journal op-ed. She cited current chairwoman Lena Khan's disregard for the rule of law and due process. What does this FTC drama mean for the agency's efforts to rein in big tech? And are there broader implications for antitrust policy going forward? Joining me to discuss is Matt Stoller. He is the director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project. He is also the author of Goliath, the hundred year war between monopoly power and democracy. He spent time on the Hill previously as an advisor to the Senate Budget Committee and former Representative Alan Grayson. And you can read his work on his Substack as I do at mattstoller.substack.com. The publication is appropriately called BIG in all caps. Very scary, just like big business, right? Matt, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Also like the movie Big with Tom Hanks. <laughs> Was that the inspiration? Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's get into it. Christine Wilson resigning. This arguably came as quite a shock in you know DC tech policy circles in the business community because it comes on the heels of her fellow Republican commissioner, Noah Phillips. He resigned in the fall with similar complaints about, about Chair Lena Khan. So now we went from having three Democrats on the FTC and two Republicans to just having three Democrats. And in her op-ed, she had some choice words for Khan. Wilson you know, accused her of, quote, consolidated power within the office of the chairman, breaking decades of bipartisan precedent and undermining the commission structure that Congress wrote into law, end quote. So what is is there anything to that? Is she accurate? I know you've been more aligned with the current chair, your you know, philosophy on antitrust. What do you think of uh, Wilson's allegations against a chair you arguably you know, admire and, and are, uh, have a similar philosophy to? Yeah, I mean, so there's a broader, this is really a dispute over policy. The Christine Wilson is kind of an angry person. She, Noah Phillips, when he resigned, it was very much like, thank you so much. Everybody was, you know, he, I think he had procedural and policy disagreements, but the, you know, that's natural. That's a common thing to have happen. Like Christine Wilson is an angry person. I mean, you talk to conservatives, you talk to journalists, you talk to everyone and they're all, you know, on my side, we're like kind of public saying, you know, this is, this is weird and personal. Even Bill Baer, who's like the antitrust sort of establishment, establishment guru was like, yeah, this is pretty vindictive and strange. Conservatives and reporters will also say, yeah, this was weird. They won't say it publicly, but they're just like, <laughs> this is weird. And I think what's going on with Wilson and she's been angry and sort of vindictive and saying this from the very get go, like when Lena Khan was, was a, a, a confirmed, there's a basic frustration. It does, I, it's not coming from bad, necessarily bad faith. There's a lot of bad faith involved, but she is offended, as I think a lot of antitrust sort of establishment types are, that we, we as Brandeisians, people who, who think that we need rivalry, we need competition, they are offended that we read the law in a way that they don't. And that's really all this is about. So as one example, the Federal Trade Commission has authority to prohibit unfair methods of competition. And there are some disputes over how they can do that, right? But they have that authority. It's very clear. The Chicago school, the sort of corporate types, the Tim Muris, that world that Christine Wilson comes from. More of like a libertarian kind of Yeah, the libertarian, they're, they're sort of came of age in the Reagan era, and they really restructured antitrust law. They don't believe that, or they do believe that, but they what they wanted was to 
circumscribe that authority. And they did that by not bringing cases, by actually issuing policy statements saying, well, we believe that unfair methods of competition, actually, that just means consumer welfare. We don't, you know, it doesn't mean what Congress wrote in there. It means what we think it means. And and they were successful. They had basically 40 years of policymaking on the right and the left. This was very much like the Obama administration did the same thing. And Christine Wilson was very complimentary of the Obama administration antitrust policy. So one of the things that – one of the reasons she's angry about Lena, and she said this, is that Lena Khan was overturning what Obama was doing. This is not like a partisan thing. It's framed as a partisan thing. But like this is an ideological disagreement. So an example of this with Section 5 authority would be that Chair Khan proposed saying that non-compete contracts, right? These contracts. Are, yeah, contracts that Employment say like contracts. you can't – if you leave this company, you can't work for a competitor for X number of years or in perpetuity. Right. They're just saying you can't work for a rival, right? 30, 40 million Americans have these non-competes written into their employment. Um, it, it, it's you know it's CEOs, but it's also people that work at Jimmy John's. Like It's crazy. And Chair Khan's put forward proposed rules saying this is unlawful. This is an unfair method of competition. And Commissioner Wilson said, I don't agree, but also you're a liar and that's crazy, right? Instead of just saying like, I don't agree and I think this is a problem, she tries to concoct sort of various like schemes to, to sort of imply this is outrageous. And what you saw today, there was a, a hearing, I mean, I guess, I guess next week. So, <laughs> so last, last week, week <laughs> last week, then there's a, an open commission hearing where you had, you know, lots of trade association people and lots of sort of ordinary people saying what they thought about non-competes. And you saw, you got a sense of like visceral anger from the U S chamber of commerce where the K street world about this choice. But you also had a lot of normal workers saying, you know, I was sexually harassed and I'm in a non-compete. I got fired, but I had a non-compete so I couldn't get a new job like that. Crazy things like that. And this is, this is the policy dispute that was happening, but they're trying to turn it into some sort of personal, like bitter sort of anger, but it's, it's really like the culture war for the richest, most powerful people in the country. And it isn't partisan because when the FTC came out with statements and I have more on this because Christine Wilson actually opposed some of what Trump was trying to do as well. When the FTC came out with this proposed rule, which is not in force yet, but it will be likely senators, Todd Young, senators, Eric Kramer, I think from North Dakota, both came out and said, this is very good. Marco Rubio has a bill on non-competes for low-wage workers. Oklahoma is one of the two states that in which non-competes are unenforceable. And it's not an anti-business rule. You had business people testifying for it. You also had a situation like a well-known historical situation where uh, Silicon Valley was created because of their non-competes are unlawful in California. So Shockley Semiconductor, which was the first semiconductor company, you had eight, eight of their, it was really badly managed. And eight of the senior engineers left to form a company called Fairchild Semiconductor, and then eventually other companies like Intel. That wouldn't have been possible if non-competes had been enforceable. And so this is a, this is a debate about what kind of society you want to live in. The attempt here with Christine Wilson and like the people behind her is to frame this as some sort of, you know, partisan power grab or whatever. But like there's plenty of Republicans who believe in this and there are plenty of Democrats who don't. This is about looking at competition law and saying we are skeptical of concentrations of power. And that's what the laws were written for in 1890, 1913, 1936, 1950. That's what the antitrust laws are about. So it's a it's a policy dispute. And it's a, it's a legal dispute. It's not like this sort of silly attempt to make it a personal element, like well, a personal let's, fight. 
Yeah, let's get into that a little bit more because, uh, you know, you are making the argument that essentially Christine Wilson, her allies in the business community, when they frame Chair Khan and they and they try to make it personal, that they're basically taking a policy dispute and trying to make it a bigger thing. Right. But, you know, Commissioner Wilson did cite a survey and, and and there's been a lot of discussion of this to kind of demonstrate that it's not just her, right? That there are people at the FTC, you know, bureaucrats, right? The the people in the in the trenches and in, in, in the lower floors, right? The 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 career staff who who do a lot of the work to implement the political vision of the the chair and the other commissioners. She quotes in the Wall Street Journal op-ed, she says, quote, hundreds of FTC employees respond annually to the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. In 2020, the last year under Trump appointees, 87% of surveyed FTC employees agreed that senior agency officials maintain high standards of honesty and integrity. Today, that share stands at 49%, end quote. So she's citing some data to say, look, it's not just me and my personal views of Chair Khan, that there's been a precipitous decline in FTC employees' view of leadership and believing they lack integrity. And then there are some allegations that go beyond policy disputes. Commissioner Wilson and Phillips have talked about a lack of transparency, right? They can't get the information they need to participate in the process that, you know, Democratic commissioners Slaughter and uh, Bedoya were redacting things from her dissents that were, had nothing to do with business, like confidentiality, right? That's why you would redact FTC No, there, that's not the reason you would do it. There are agency rules. I mean, it's not like they're redacting stuff just because it's fun. Wilson's <laughs> been doing this kind of, I'm sorry to say this, but Wilson's been doing this kind of BS the whole time she was there. It's like one, one of the first things that happened, like, okay, so Chair Khan puts forward a rule saying that if you label a product made in America and you're actually making it in China, that it's unlawful. And Christine Wilson votes against it. This is something that they wanted to do in the Trump administration. The Trump White House got mad at the FTC because Wilson and Noah Phillips voted against it. And it really embarrassed them because they're libertarians and they just don't want the government to be involved in anything. And so when, you know, Chair Khan comes and does this, it's the first thing she does. What is... Christine Wilson do, like she concocts a series of procedural process nonsense. Like and one of the things she said is, I can't get information about whether we're investigating certain mergers, what's called second requests. So she she's like, I can't get this information. And as it turns out, what happened is like she emailed, I think she like emailed the chair and like the, the chair didn't respond to her email immediately. And so she said, she went public and said, I'm being denied information. And it's ridiculous and, you know, Commissioner Chopra, who was in the minority during the Trump administration, said, no, it's happened to me. It's not a big deal. And then the chair put in place a process to share what are called these second requests so that, that all the commissioners could get them. It was purely a procedural, like the bureaucracy just hadn't set up a procedure to share this information in a root, root, routinized way. And Christine Wilson just made the argument that this was some sort of bad faith, blah, blah, blah by, you know, Lena Cox, because she's just trying to personalize what is in fact a policy embarrassment on her part. Like she voted against not just the made in America fraud rule, which embarrassed her, right? That was in the New York Times that she got crosswise with Trump. And she really wanted to be the chair of the FTC under Trump's second term. But also something like the antitrust case against Facebook, which Trump's chair, Joe Simons, actually put forward and put through with the votes of the two minority Democratic commissioners, and Noah Phillips and Christine Wilson voted against it. Right? They vote against bringing antitrust cases against Facebook, and then a, an Obama-appointed judge dismissed it, and Lena Khan brought it back. 
right? And put it through again, three to two, this time under all Democrats, because it's, you know, switched from Trump to Biden and Christine Wilson votes against, for, against it again. And she's trying to say, oh, well, this is just a partisan thing, but it's clearly not a partisan thing. She's a libertarian and she's opposed to, like, she's part of that Tim Muras world. They want to offshore American jobs. They want to facilitate consolidation of power by big tech, which includes things like censorship. Like, this is this is an ideological dispute. And just like you kind of had, remember how, like, liberals, like, their minds were blown by Trump and it didn't matter what, like, Trump could just be like, I like steak with ketchup and people would be like, how dare you, right? Um, <laughs> this is the same thing, right? This is like Lena Khan derangement syndrome. You you put Lena, Lena Khan, she can do it. She can just be like, oh yeah, like um, I like the color blue and people will get just insanely mad. But it's not about her. It's about saying, you know, look, this 40 year policy agenda of consolidating power has led to a world in which there is political instability in which dominant tech firms control what we, the information that we have and what we can say to each other. And it was ultimately, we need to re-examine it because it was a failure. And that's profoundly embarrassing to not just Wilson. I mean, she doesn't really matter, but like a whole set of actors who brought this forth. And it also is, it's not what younger conservatives believe. It's not what you have when you have like newer members of Congress who are coming in, you know, they're looking at the world and they're not saying, well, the problem that we have here is, you know, too much government regulation. What they're saying is the problem that we have is the collusion of big business and government or monopolies that are causing lots of problems as well as government. And that is a different framework. And that's what Christine Wilson is truly worried about. She's not, I mean, she personally just dislikes uh, Chair Khan, but this is like the same thing that we've been seeing over and over and over, a very bitter personal anger towards people who are presenting different ideas. And that's just how it goes. I mean, that's just how it goes when you present something different. You make a compelling case that there were items that have kind of crossed over from the administration and she's trying to frame it as, you know, Lena Khan gone awry when right. the Trump FTC was trying to do the same thing. There is this change, right? There was 87% say you had high standards of it, honesty and integrity in 2020, and now it's 49%. What Of senior senior managers at the FTC, one survey, and Bill Baer was like, this is an exaggerated claim about lower morale. Since when do like... Republicans become the defenders of like a deep state, right? I mean, it, it, I don't mean to be like the FTC is a deep state because like whatever there are, there are, it's supposed to, to manage unfairness in the American economy. And it's basically the same size as the number of like Smithsonian guards, like security guards. So it's like way, way underpowered relative to the job. So I'm not trying to be like, oh, the staff isn't doing a good job or whatever, but like, who cares? Who cares? Like, Nobody cares if their car, if the people who built their car were like super happy or like a little bit annoyed. It's like, does the car work, right? And the 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 fundamental problem here is the car hasn't worked. Now, I uh, suspect that like you have one survey of some senior leaders who are probably like annoyed that they're being told to do something differently. You often see this. You saw this kind of thing in the early 80s when Reagan's people came in. They didn't weren't doing staff surveys. But there was a lot of anger when because they knew how to do things one way. And Jim Miller came in and told them to do it a different way. And there were big fights. And that is a very natural thing to have happen. They are proud people who believe in what they're doing and they're being told to do it differently. So you would not expect I'm like, I'm sure people at the Department of Transportation are super happy with Pete Buttigieg's 
leadership because he's not asking them to do anything differently. But like, meanwhile, trains are blowing up and planes aren't working. So like there are trade-offs here, right? If you want to change bureaucracies, sometimes people are going to get somewhat upset. And I, I suspect, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that like people will get used to this and they'll be like, okay. And I, I think that's already sort of happened. Like, you know, one of the arguments from, I think the person behind this is really Jim Jordan and sort of like K the, Street, the chairman of the yeah. judiciary committee. Yeah. And, and what, one of the things like the, the, they're arguing is that Lena Khan and the Brandeisians have some lawless sense of how the world works. And like, we want to use antitrust to like deal with all sorts of unrelated social problems. And, and that's, that's not true. Like all of the cases that Khan has brought have are completely credible, are reasonable, uh, almost orthodox, not entirely orthodox, but they are all about rivalry. And so even when they lose, like they lost a case when Facebook tried to, Meta tried to buy Within, which is a virtual reality app maker. It was the first challenge to a big tech merger. And it was under Chair Khan that they brought the case. The judge ruled that the FTC's legal theory was completely sound. Everything that they were doing was right. And they just didn't quite prove that Meta was, would, it's a technical thing, but they didn't prove that if Meta hadn't bought within that they would have come into the market on their own. It was like a very technical loss. And, and, it, and the FTC was pretty happy with it because they thought, okay, well, the legal grounding for what we want to do is reasonable. But it was no, like the judge didn't say, oh, this is completely lawless. This is completely outside any of our legal traditions. It's just, it's just a nonsense claim because they're not used to actually using the antitrust law that is in precedent from the 19. 80s and 70s and 60s and 50s, it's in law, right? And that is what Chair Khan is using. And they're just very angry about that. Let's talk about this shift in thinking. Uh, I think the Biden administration has really talked a lot about competition and antitrust in a way that is different from prior administrations, including those of his own party. You mentioned the Obama administration. And, you know, listeners maybe blissfully don't uh, consume antitrust debates <laughs> in academia. They're totally but- fascinating. It's all the money and power in the world. It <laughs> yes. really is. It's so, like- so let's let's get into this dispute, right? You basically, you know, at the risk of oversimplification, there's plenty of nuance in, in between these two polls. But at the one end, you have kind of the, I will say traditional, you will probably dispute that it is traditional, but the, the Chicago school, right? The, the idea that the purpose of antitrust is consumer welfare and the consumer welfare standard is mostly measured by consumer price, right? That, that the harm to consumer, the most obvious monopoly harm is price. When you have a monopoly in the market, you can overcharge for something. And the example that we would use is something like standard oil in the back, back in the day or Carnegie with steel, right? We go back to these kind of the, the companies that created antitrust as a, as a school of thought in the United States way back in the early 1900s. At the other end, you have you know, Brandeisians like yourself, and you've kind of articulated some of that philosophy already that are saying that is a way too limiting principle. You can't just look at price, especially when sometimes the product is costless, at least you know costless in terms of Zero money, price, yeah. but it Cost, co- there's costs in other ways. And big tech's the perfect example, right? People log on to Facebook or Instagram, they Google search, they go on YouTube, and unless they're paying for a premium service, they're usually not paying anything. It's free. We all know now, we're, we're, we're sophisticated consumers, I hope, that it's not really free what you are doing is you are exchanging your data so that they can create a model and add you into that model and then sell that to advertisers and then target ads to you. But my question is, why should the consumer care about competitors, right? Two of the big bills that were being dealt with in Congress that that failed in the last Congress, one was aimed at self-preferencing, things like Amazon putting its own products higher up in a search result or Google putting its 
products higher up in a search result. Again, does that harm the consumer? Why should the consumer care? It's, it seems like two companies fighting. And when you look at when you look at a lot of these bills, proponents of these bills are folks like yourself who are advocates. But there's also some big money here. Not not terribly small companies, smaller than Google. But you've got you know Spotify, you've got DuckDuckGo, you've got Epic Games, who makes Fortnite. I guess the question is, why should we move away from the you know kind of Robert Bork Chicago School? consumer welfare standard if consumers are not really being harmed? Well, I think that, you know, so the, the, the basic difference, I think that was a fair characterization. I would say that the basic difference is that the Chicago schoolers, and I think traditional antitrust is fine to call it that since the early 80s, their uh, motivating principle is efficiency. So they would say, it doesn't matter if there's five competitors or one competitor or a hundred competitors, if it's efficient, cool. And the, they measure that as they say, maximum output in the market by as shown through low consumer prices. And the way that we look at the world is we say, well, we have no idea if a market is efficient or not, and we can't know that. We should just make sure that there's rivalry. Our fear is concentrations of power. And we just think that if you know you do, you should care about whether there's one competitor or five competitors or a hundred competitors. And there's a lot of reasons for this. This this is how the laws were written, you know, to promote small business and to promote opportunity for individuals, but also because big business tends to be inefficient and not very good at what they do. Like, and it's not that consumer experience, consumer price doesn't matter in the Brandeisian frame. It's just that consumer welfare is a little bit of a, it's kind of like a, a, a little bit of a misleading term because it, what, what they really care about is price theory and efficiency. And, and they talk about what welfare um, they look at welfare effects instead of rivalry in the market. A lot of folks say that Biden is moving towards a more European view of antitrust. And, and, and the European authorities, they do care a lot about number of competitors, robustness of competition. And they do look at things like how would a merger affect a competitor, not just how would it, how it would affect a consumer. And a lot of critics of your worldview, they say all you have to do is look across the pond to see what would happen because you have Europe, which has – nothing resembling the tech sector we have here. They base all of their biggest services that operate in Europe are just American companies selling their services. You have Spotify, great, but like not, not a ton else. And that, and that when you ask, you know, startups, why are you doing this? A lot of them say, I'm trying to attract a buyout, right? I want to be rewarded for my innovation and I need to be able to sell or at least have the idea that I can sell to attract venture capital. So is there not a risk that if we move in that direction that, yeah, it may sound cliche, but folks like the Chamber of Commerce and other, they say, just look across the pond. They're not as innovative. Their tech sector is weak. And that's what we're going to end up with. So, so I would reject the premise that we're moving towards a more European model. Europeans believe in consumer welfare too. They're, the European Commission is garbage. Google and Facebook <laughs> are take. dominant. Uh, they're no, they're they're total garbage. Like the idea that they are doing anything meaningful is just it's just bullshit from Margaret Vestager, who cares more about headlines than action. Like it's the the Europeans are a mess, and to even consider them relevant actors in antitrust is ridiculous. They did a few things five ten years ago when we weren't doing anything at all that was sort of modestly interesting, but like they are not important or relevant. And to the extent that European competition law is sort of interesting. It's, it's because it came from America. I mean, the European Commission, their competition laws were directly imported by in mid-century. And 
from Americans. And we did that because IG Farben and various German companies were contributors to the rise of the Nazis, which is, you know, we said, like Eisenhower said, we got to break up IG Farben. There was always this view in America that consolidation leads to world wars, authoritarianism, nationalism. It, that is what happened and nationalism in the bad sense, right? And that is what happened in World War One. That is what happened. Um, IG Farben was a result of a bunch of roll-ups in the 20s. I mean, IG Farben's German chemical company was used by the Nazis, helped finance the rise of the Nazis, and also made the the gas that was used in the concentration camps, like really bad, right? Like a really, 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 really bad monopoly, like probably the worst in human history. And that is one of the reasons why, you know, we don't talk about fascism, or at least we don't talk about fascism except in a very stupid way, but like actual fascism. Right. The marriage of, the, of authoritarian government with large corporations, right? Yeah. That was, that was yeah. how FDR saw it. That's so anyway, I, I don't, I don't mean to get too much into the, into the Europeans, but I just, what, what, what uh, Chair Khan is doing is returning us in many ways to the legal frameworks that built the Silicon Valley, that built the American tech industry in the, the middle of the 20th century, built the electronic century. This is what well-known historian Alfred Chandler talked about. He called the antitrust enforcers the gods of creation because they were so important. I talked about Intel and Fairchild Semiconductor in the uh, 50s and 60s. The actual original electronic transistor came, um, commercialization of that came out of a consent decree with AT&T on an antitrust case in 1956 when the Eisenhower antitrust division said that you guys are a monopoly. And so what one thing we're going to do is we're going to force you to divest your patents on a non-discriminatory basis to all comers, which included companies like Fairchild Semiconductor. One of the one of Bell Labs' inventions was the electronic transistor, which, you know, ATT invented a lot of cool stuff, but they just tended to like put it on the shelf, which is what Google does, right? Which is what Facebook does, which was, was Microsoft. They don't commercialize most of the stuff that they that they invent. Well, the country said in 1956 to AT&T, you have to let anybody license it. And so Motorola, a small company, then Texas Instruments, which was just a small oil services company, Fairchild Semiconductor, like none of them had to get into fights, patent fights with AT&T. They could just invent the semiconductor industry, right? And that is the foundation of, that is the foundation of Silicon Valley. And there's a bunch of companies that that happened to. It's the foundation of our electronic century. Now, one of the things that's happened in the last 20 years is innovation has really slowed down. I mean, there's some cool stuff, I think, with the AI with the AI chat stuff that's happening now. But like, if you look at Google search, Google search is not, is worse than it was like five years ago, 10 years ago. You look at it and what, like the first four things that you see are ads, right? And you scroll down, it's not getting better because they don't have any competition. And the, and the price that you pay as a consumer isn't monetary necessarily, but seeing more ads is actually a like that is a quality degradation, which is the equivalent of a price hike. And Google has been raising prices since they monopolized and fortified their monopoly power. And you see this kind of across the board, like Facebook's product, like their core social networking products suck. They're not good. They haven't gotten better for 20 years or 10 years because they're not under any pressure, but they have done more surveillance because they don't have any rivals. And surveillance is essentially another form of a of a price hike because people don't like surveillance of so so what we have seen is is and and this is true across the economy as we've seen consolidation across the economy and 75% of industries have become more consolidated since 2000 new firm formation at least a couple of years ago was at a 45 year low right and and innovation is at 
is, is similarly low because it's not it's not the big guys that innovate. It never has been. It's always the it's always the person who's not encumbered with with a legacy business. It, and they they can you know big guys can innovate, but like you're saying, they don't bring it to market because they, they don't have. They to. deploy technology only to the extent that it's it fortifies their existing monopoly, right? So there's a lot of incentives not to innovate, even if they have the technology that sits on the shelf. Like AT and T had the answering machine; they had technology for the answering machine on the shelf since the 1930s, and it finally like came out in the 70s or 80s. Like that's a kind of lack of or, or uh, withholding of innovation that we see. And that we're seeing now. And if you did break up some of these big firms, you would see this explosion of innovation kind of across the board because there are a lot of people who are at these firms who, you know, they made, they did startups, then they got bought up and they're in gilded prisons and, you know, they get their free lunches, but it's, but it's boring. And think of all of the resources that are sitting, that are sitting in these companies and are not being exploited. They're being exploited by the Chinese because the Chinese have hacked these companies and have all of that all of that information and and trade secrets and whatnot, but it's just like our companies are keeping American in, Americans from innovating as well. So there's there's like a, a lot here, but there's very little evidence that that anything good comes out of this consolidated economic structure that we have right now. So a lot of folks in antitrust world they say the, the conventional wisdom is basically that our judicial system, our case law, is much more geared toward you know the quote unquote traditional Chicago school, and that. There's going to be a lot of headwinds for you know state attorneys general for folks like chair of the FTC Lena Khan, but also um, Jonathan Cantor because that's the other the Department of Justice is also involved in antitrust and they're going to bring cases and a lot of folks analysts they say these cases are going to fail because the laws haven't changed to fit a more neo Brandeisian worldview. So and and I know that's a mixed bag and you have views on that and and you've argued that actually there's a lot of wins that the FTC is getting that they're not getting credit for but let's table that for a second and talk about actually changing the law. Right. So Congress had this huge debate last Congress about two bills in particular. I'm going to probably oversimplify well, wait, before, things. Before we go there, can I just address your point about the cases before yeah. we go to legislation? Yeah. So so there are now okay. One of the things about that I've Learn. I'm not a lawyer, but one of the things you learn about enforcement is if you don't bring cases, you can't win cases. Oh, you miss 100% of the right. shots you don't take. Michael Scott, Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Um, and from for 20 years, from 1998 until 2020, the antitrust division at the Department of Justice didn't bring a single monopolization case. Not a single one. They didn't find out. And, I, and Carl Shapiro, who was an Obama uh, official in the antitrust division, he was the head economist there for a while, he said, in 2017, he wrote a paper explaining why, because we criticized him. We said, you didn't bring a case. He said, well, we couldn't find any monopolies in the economy. You would disagree with that. Well, I mean, anybody <laughs> would disagree with that. Like, it's crazy. It's a crazy statement. But this is the guy that was, you know, that, and, and this was the sort of the bipartisan consensus, right? And uh, I think, you know, Christine Wilson, by the way, quoted Carl Shapiro in various guises and stuff, because it was, it's a clubhouse, right, of, of Dems and ours who are like nice to each other. And, you know, everybody loves that. Anyway, the, the, the point is that, that there are, there's a ton of stuff that you can do just by starting enforcement. One of the things of not bringing cases for 20 years means, and not bringing like merger, like Reagan didn't, didn't bring a lot of merger challenges and Clinton, you know, they didn't really bring that many merger challenges. The case law is still from, much of it is still from the seventies, right? So the active case law is still there and still viable. It's just that no enforcers have like picked it up. The other thing is that the States are bringing cases there are now, um, I think, five or six antitrust cases against Google, including from very conservative Ken Paxton in Texas. 
Democrat Phil Weiser in Colorado, two from the Department of Justice Antitrust Division, and maybe three. I mean, there's one on app stores, there's one on ad tech, there's one on search distribution. It, this is one of them's going to get through, right? And these are, you know, like the the, the case that Trump brought and that Biden is bringing, uh, continuing on on Google is very similar to the Microsoft case, right? It's a tie, it's basically like a tying claim or a claim that you know Microsoft. They were trying to kill Netscape, and they said, well, "We're going to put our, we're going to bundle our browser with our operating system, and we're going to, you know, anybody who like an ISP or computer maker, we're going to tell them to put Internet Explorer instead of Netscape." And that's very similar to what Google did with Search. They paid Apple to put Search on the on the iPhone as the default. They paid Mozilla. They they bought Android and bundled it. So it's not. I mean, that case that's the Microsoft case, right? It's just so a lot of the case law is fine. And some of the more, you know, you're going to find that some, there are probably like more aggressive claims, like dominance of an ecosystem that no one has made yet. Somebody will make it and they'll probably lose on that. Or they'll have to like, you know, there might be a way that they'll do something on self-preferencing or whatever. And they might like, they may, there, there are, might be cases they're not bringing because they don't think the case law is strong, but part of what the enforcers have done first under Trump a little bit, and now under Biden much more aggressively is they're just bringing a lot of cases and they're going to win some of the case. They're going yeah. to lose a lot of them, but they're going to win some too. Well, Trump did lose two big ones. Or not, sorry. Trump lost one big one, and then the state AGs lost one big one under his administration. That was, of course, uh, when AT&T was yeah, buying- vertical, uh, The first vertical merger challenge in 40 years. Yeah, AT&T buying Time Warner, which they ended up kind of spinning that off on their own because it failed. But that was, that was a loss for the Trump administration. And then a merger that the Trump administration approved, Sprint and T-Mobile in the uh, wireless space- that uh, the AGs from California, New York, and elsewhere they lost. So, um, you know, they're, yeah, but, but they're, the, the but the consequence of the AT and T Time Warner merger. I mean, the, the read the decision now. It's it's um, Judge Richard Leon. It's like an embarrassing decision. The guy said, "Yeah, this is going to totally help efficiencies. Like AT and T and Time Warner are going to be great. They're going to compete with Google and Facebook." And what happened? Like they paid a bunch of consultants and screwed everything up, and then ended up splitting up the company. Like it but was a disaster. That, but doesn't that show that a lot of times when the government is saying that? some merger is going to create some unstoppable. And I saw the rhetoric around AT&T and Time Warner. I mean, a lot of it was pretty hyperbolic. It was like, if AT&T buys Time Warner, you know, consumers are going to be screwed. There's going to be massive price hikes. They're going to monopolize the content industry. And then what ends up happening, it's a failure and a business failure. And AT&T has to spin it off. So well, they did, first of all, they did actually engage in anti-competitive conduct. So they did say to, like, one of the things that ATT claimed in the trial was, we would never deny HBO content to rival cable networks uh, if, if we buy HBO. And, then, and the judge said they would never do that. And then immediately they did that for bargaining leverage. So now the, the fact that they didn't succeed in creating a monopoly doesn't mean that they didn't try to create a monopoly. But more importantly, a key premise of the Chicago School is it's I think it's called the false positive problem where they say it's may, way more important to let if you have a choice about letting a monopoly through or a merger through that you think might be problematic but you're not sure or not letting it through you should always let it through because it's much more dangerous to stop a merger because like because business people know what they're doing mergers generally are good then you wouldn't want to dissuade mergers and the premise there is that mergers are good mergers tend to be good and you just want to like carve out the ones that are problematic and what we see like overwhelming amounts of evidence from Harvard Business Review and McKinsey, but also lots of, you know, other researchers is that most mergers are even, you know, are, are bad. Most mergers don't work out. And most, a lot of mergers that do are tend to monopolize 
you know, the big ones, the AT&T Time Warners are kind of a mess, right? So if the government had won that case, all that would have happened is it would have helped a bunch of AT&T shareholders and it would have stopped a bunch of nonsense from happening at Time Warner and would have kept together like a company that was doing reasonably well. And, and that's what kind of what you see over and over is that like Disney bought Fox and now Disney's having huge problems because, and you know what, there's just like Nelson Peltz is going after Disney for buying Fox. There were monopolization problems there, but also like mergers are generally, they're generally inefficient transactions. So the whole premise of the Chicago school of like, oh, we're going to like do a welfare analysis and make sure that everything's efficient and low prices. It fails by its own merits. It's all garbage analysis. It's all ridiculous. But I mean, that's just the rhetoric that it's more efficient, but all it is really is just a justification for consolidating power. That's all it is. So let's talk about what Congress wants to do on antitrust or didn't want to do. Spoiler alert. Uh, So last Congress, there were two big pieces of legislation that failed. One was called the Open App Markets Act. I will call it OAMA because I love pronouncing out acronyms. And that was mostly dealing with the alleged, you know, by the bill sponsors, App Store duopoly, basically the idea that I personally think is correct, which is that we have a duopoly in the App Store market where basically Google and Apple between the Android Play Store and the Apple App Store, that is the market. It's a duopoly and that they engage in certain practices that you could argue are anti-competitive, like charging 30% fees and basically the fact that they get to decide what's in there. So it's a bit of a bottleneck. Then there's the other bill. Elon Musk was complaining about it. Yes, exactly. And, and you know when he complains about something, that it gets a lot of attention. So then there was the American Innovation and Online Choice Act, I think. And ICOA is what us- it's Self-preferencing. Co- I don't yes, call it self-preferencing. Us cool and antitrust insiders like to call it ICOA. So that was dealing with- um, I never called know, it ICOA. Of course, of course. <laughs> Amazon, like doing the thing with where they put their their- you know, generic products up top and, and search results and stuff like that. Yeah. Self-preferencing, like you said, both bills failed. Now it would be potentially very easy to just say, look, these were bills targeting the largest, most powerful companies in the world in human history. And they spent a lot of money and they killed them. Is it that simple? No, it's, it's, uh, it's simple. It is that simple, but that's not what happened. Like Chuck Schumer just didn't want to put him on the floor because Chuck Schumer is corrupt. That's really simple. I mean, and McConnell also didn't want to. But I want to make one point that is important here, which is that we actually did pass antitrust legislation last co- Congress. It was the a bill that let state attorney generals bring- The venue uh, bill. The venue bill bring, it's a procedural bill, but they can bring antitrust cases in their home court, which sounds like a small deal, but actually it's a huge deal. Process and procedure is kind of everything in antitrust. So that's going to kind of be a game changer. It's also the, strong, the first- strengthening the first major strengthening of antitrust law since the 1970s. It's like a huge deal. They also put a bunch more money into the FTC and DOJ and they raised filing fees for mergers. So you're going to start to see, I think a lot more challenges because they're just going to be bringing on more staff. And then there was also a bill that would force the disclosure of any effectively of any Chinese money involved in any mergers and so that that like it, it's important to like say okay we did actually pass a bunch of important stuff game changing stuff but I think to your point the the tech antitrust stuff specifically didn't move and it's because Chuck Schumer didn't want to give it a vote and he told Amy Klobuchar I'm going to give it a vote and he was just lying. Do you think so, there's anything to this idea that the antitrust coalition you know this kind of maybe it's loose maybe it was a tight knit coalition but there was some groups on the populist right populist left you know some stuff in between. Was there a mistake in tactics? There's been some news reporting that, you know, some of these groups 
they they were doing silly things like sending a monopoly a, a man dressed like a monopoly man running around Congress basically pointing the finger at every lawmaker and 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 talking shit about them. You know, is that not well received? Is that no? Kind we of- had the we had the support. I mean, you know, there was were there there were things we probably could have done better. So first of all, I think that the App Store bill will move this Congress. Uh, I think there's support for it on the right. Jim Jordan's talked about, you know, this might be something we can do, or it might go through energy commerce. I think everybody recognized that there's an app store. It's a huge app store problem. It could also go through states, and I think they will go through states. And there's there's interesting stuff on antitrust at a state level. So I think there's going to be there is going to be action in Congress and at a state level on antitrust laws. I think with the um, the self preferencing bill, I mean, there were a series of bills that came out of the hearings, and the this was all preceded by a two year or eighteen month investigation by the House Judiciary Subcommittee on Antitrust by David Cicilline and Ken Buck. They went through millions of documents. They really like research. They put the CEO tech CEOs on the stand in a, in a not embarrassing way for Congress. And then they wrote a report saying, here are the problems that we're seeing with antitrust and with the agencies and with here's how big tech works. I mean, they really just sort of did an industry analysis. It was very sophisticated. That's what was the predicate for all this. And they recommended a number of things. First of all, they recommended legislation to break these companies up by statute. And that legislation did get introduced. It didn't move, it moved out of committee, but it didn't go sort of elsewhere. And they recommended self-preferencing. They recommended a number of other things. But I will say, I don't think that we did enough work to coherently draft bills on self-preferencing. I think that bill was too vague. It didn't define things like lines of business. I think you would have, I wanted it to pass, but like if it had passed, it still would have been litigated for 10 years. There are better bills. I think the App Store bill was better. It was clear. It was just like, you know, we have to do something about the App Store specifically. Senator Mike Lee has a bill that would deal with a specific component of Google and Facebook, which is how like ad they, tech. the ad tech, which is basically the software plumbing of online ads all over the internet. And it is a very smart bill. And I think would do, you know, it, it, it's not search. It would take that part of the problem. But I think the the way you deal with big tech is, you know, it's like how you eat an elephant. It's bite by bite. Like you have to do like bite-sized stuff. And I think one of the structural problems with the ACOA bill is that it was trying to take on everything at once, as opposed to saying, well, Amazon and and Google are different problems. I mean, I think we're going to have, we have real issues with cloud computing. I think we're going to see that with AI. Like, so, so there's a, we have essentially not governed our economy for 40 years and there are now going to be very serious there. And we can see that because like the airline system is in constant crisis and they, they're constantly going to the government for bailouts. Like it's not just big tech. And what we're going to see is a return to traditional forms of American governance, like public utility law, uh, common carriage rules, which really are the way that both conservatives and liberals thought about the economy prior to the 1970s, going back to the 1770s. So I think that's, we're going to see like, an and these were sort of the initial attempts to kind of conceptualize what we were doing, but they're not the last attempts that this is sort of just the beginning. Unless you make me edit it out, I will note that you said ICOA, so I win. You're a bad person. <laughs> so we had an audio problem there. <laughs> I'm a fan of your Substack. That's why I was excited to talk to you. And it's how I found you. I've also seen you on Twitter for years because you are quite prolific on there. It's a good combination of uh, sparring with people, talking about antitrust, also shit posting about sports. That seems to be a hobby of yours. I think I'm, hot takes, I'm, you just like, you take like a very talented team or athlete and just say like that, that guy sucks. Uh, which, I'm, cursed, <laughs> I'm cursed to be a Dolphins fan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. so, I think, I, think yeah. I read some tweet from you that was like, the Eagles are trash. Or oh yeah, no, I did. Trash. That was just, I actually love Philly.
Philly and yeah. I really like the Eagles. I just decided yeah. to be like super mean to the Eagles the whole the whole day. I think it's fun. But the, the the actual point I'm trying to make is that I enjoy reading your Substack oh. because it challenges my priors and I am not where you are on politics and obviously we come from very different worldviews, but it's certainly made me think differently. My last question to you is you spend a lot of time talking to conservatives. You, right. You've said that you enjoy this, this, right. this, this wild concept of talking to people across the aisle, which we need to do more of. Is there something that you've almost completely changed your mind on a political view as a result of that uh, across the aisle outreach? That's a good question. I mean, I think, I think the conservatives, you know, it was, I mean, I think I've been convinced that there is sort of a liberal establishment that engages in sort of that, like does a, a sort of bad group think and, you know, the, the conservatives have been very good at, at like characterizing how that works in a way that I hadn't totally understood. I think I've seen a lot of problems with universities that I didn't understand before that I think conservatives have been good at highlighting. I mean, I think they, I don't agree with them on all of the critiques, but like there's a lot of critiques of sort of the liberal establishment that I think are very fair and that I hadn't kind of thought of. Yeah. I don't know if that's. No, that, 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 that's fair. And I, I, I do share uh, your newfound concern for academia and groupthink. You are the author of Goliath, the hundred year war between monopoly power and democracy. Check that out. Check out his newsletter at mattstoller.substack.com appropriately named big, all, all caps, very scary, just like big business. You are at American Economic Liberties Project. Anything you'd like to plug that your organization's doing? Any events? Cool stuff? Writing? Podcasts? <laughs> oh, wow. For the, for, the, for the millions of listeners that this podcast has? Oh, I hadn't thought about that. I, I, <laughs> I mean, we're doing some cool stuff, but I'm not sure what I'm allowed to reveal. All good. That, that just makes it we have, mysterious we have, okay, and exciting. So, so here's some, I'll, I'll plug some legislation. Can I do that? Yes. So one of the, I think one of the arguments you could make about why the Democrats are not where I wish they were is you can just look at Pete Buttigieg, who is a disaster at the Department of Transportation. And we were encouraging him to crack down on the airlines using the Department of Transportation's authority, various guises, but now like everything's blowing up. So it's, you know, it's, well, it's a problem, but we have legislation. So right. Airlines are the only industry that individuals can't sue. That's preempted for individuals uh, or state attorney generals to sue over consumer protection or safety rules because the Department of Transportation and the Deregulation Act preempted all of that in 78. And we have legislation that would say that, and then the DOT never wants to go after the airlines because they have a sort of tacit deal with them. And you have people like Buttigieg at the DOT who didn't, you know, who aren't, aren't going to force it. And so you, you, the airlines keep getting worse, right? And what we want to do, and a lot of state attorney generals, Republicans and Democrats have both asked for this. There's a 33 of them wrote a letter to Congress saying, please give us the authority to sue the airlines and under you know consumer and safety protection rules, just get rid of preemptions so that there is somebody other than Secretary Buttigieg who can enforce the rules on companies like Southwest or, or, or various others. And that is, I think, legislation that would be good. It's good for a lot of, it's good for conservatives because there's a lot of places, you know, these airlines cut flights to rural and, and mid-sized cities, often in red states like Ohio and uh, Missouri. So I would just, that's legislation we, we have proposed. And I think it would, it's good. It's a good, it's a good idea. Um, and it's something that I, I hope that we can do work with on, with, work with Republicans are. And I think we are working with Republicans on it. We'll keep an eye on it. Matt, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. 
find this podcast on the two monopolies, Google and Apple, the other place and uh, both. There are there are other options, of course. I'm sure. Yeah, maybe maybe throw a bone to a smaller company and uh, subscribe there. Of course, uh, leave us a review if you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>